and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 122, Murder and Deception. Claire Hollingworth was not your typical early 20th century woman. True, her early life was rather simple, being raised on a farm in Leicester, in the Midlands of England. But Claire wanted to live outside her environs, which drove her mother mad. For one, she wanted to be a writer. She also attended a nearby science college. But what forced her to look beyond her parents' lands was her father's other job of arranging battlefield tours. That she found exciting. Continuing on her self-determined trajectory of a life lived outside the box, Claire then became a secretary at the League of Nations and then pursued courses in Slavic studies. She married a fellow League of Nations worker in 1936, but was soon in Europe proper, helping those she could. After the Munich Agreement of September of 1938, non-German national Czechs left the Sudetenland, seeking a new home. Some ended up in Poland, as did Claire in Warsaw, bringing what succor she could to those people. But in August of 1939, during a short trip to London, Daily Telegraph editor Arthur Wilson hired her as a reporter for her experience in Poland more than her writing. Either way, a childhood dream had just come true. In August of 1939, as tension heightened between Nazi Germany and Poland, the border between the two was closed, except to diplomatic staff. So Claire borrowed a British consul's car and drove into Germany. Having picked up torches, flashlights, wine, and a sizable amount of film, she headed back to the Polish border. But just before getting there, she noticed massive Hessian screens think woven fabric or gunny-like in material, in a valley. Just then, a strong breeze came along and pushed one of the screens out of place. In that moment, Clara saw thousands of troops, tanks, and artillery, and all were pointed towards Poland. Hollingworth was then 27 years old and had been on the job as a reporter for less than a week. The next day, August 29, 1939, her report was on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. It would be remembered as the scoop of the century. And just three days later, Hollingsworth awoke to rumbling. It was, in fact, German tanks invading Poland. Right away, she called the secretary at the British embassy in Warsaw to warn them, to which they replied that their could be no invasion, as the negotiations between the two countries were still ongoing. Later, Hollingsworth would write, So I hung the phone receiver out of the window so he could listen to the Germans invading. Within hours, Hollingsworth was behind enemy lines, but again, the British flag saved her. After the defense of Poland collapsed, with the Soviets invading from the east on September 17th, She then traveled to Bucharest, Romania, to continue to cover the war. But it was in Bucharest where she found out her marriage had come to an end. Her response? I thought that, for me, and in a different kind of way, for him, my career was more important than trying to rush back home. Meanwhile, Berlin told the German people that the attack 
was in self-defense, that for the last few days the Poles had been making incursions into German territory, the worst being an attack on a German radio station on August 31st. The enemy had taken over the station and broadcasted an anti-German speech. Thus, the invasion was justified. Of course, we now know that the entire episode was a put-up job by A.H. Najak of the SS. We also now know that with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the Soviet Union would join in on the attack just 16 days later. Poland, the country, ceased to exist on October 6th. During the occupation of Poland, Soviet Russia would deport some 1.2 million Polish civilians and another 230,000 soldiers of all ranks. Other Polish men in uniform would be added to the second list when Stalin invaded the Baltic countries, finding those Poles who had fled when their country was lost. Then the number of Polish soldiers who had been captured stood around 250,000, of which some 10,000 were officers. Of this lot, some 15,000 men, including 8,300 officers, were never seen again. But then came Hitler's Operation Barbarossa, his invasion of Soviet Russia. The German-Soviet non-aggression pact was a thing of the past. The Soviets, now needing allies, joined those already fighting Nazi Germany. And as it was losing thousands of square kilometers a day to the invaders, they needed the help of anyone who would fight to defend Russian territory. Which meant that to be an ally... Soviet Russia had to act like an ally. This is how the British Foreign Office brought together Stalin's government with the Polish government in exile in London. As can be imagined, the Polish wanted to get straight their former territory, now controlled by the Soviets, to which Ivan Meinsky, the Soviet ambassador to Great Britain, signed a statement that read, in part, the Soviet-German treaties of 1939 relative to the territorial changes in Poland have lost their validity. As for the Russians, they needed to get something out of this as well. So a protocol was established that would free all the Polish POWs, regardless of their status, and further, of those about to be freed, as many as who wanted could join the Polish army, about to be formed in Russia, to help fight the Germans. This was made official in August of 41, just over a month after the Germans invaded Russia. And being desperate, Stalin would allow this Polish force to be under the command of the Polish government in exile, but it would be incorporated into the Soviet-German Eastern Front. By the end of the year, with the Germans just 30 miles from Moscow, the 25,000 Polish soldiers would be formed into three infantry divisions, the 5th, 6th, and 7th. Right away, the newly formed Polish embassy in Russia got to work, gathering recently freed Polish citizens. It also established various locations throughout Russia where Poles who were in hiding could go to, to be taken care of or join the army. One such place was a gathering at Bozoluk, some 650 kilometers, or 403 miles, southeast of Moscow.
Many of those released from the 138 prison or labor camps gravitated to Bozolok. There they could be amongst their own, far from the Germans, and it seemed from Soviet supervision, who had more important matters to tend to. Soon thousands of Polish men were vying to fight the Germans, but these men needed officers, and those officers needed a commander. So the Soviets released General Anders. But what would soon become apparent when the lower ranks and General Anders sat staring at each other was that very few officers joined the forming army or had even come to Bozolok, which was odd, as word had been put out by the Polish and Soviet authorities. The latter wanted this army formed quick-smart and put into the field Yet the situation stayed the same. General Anders assessed his army status. Of 14 Polish generals captured by the Soviet army when their forces invaded from the east, only two reached the gathering. Of the 300 high-ranking staff officers, also captured by Soviet troops earlier, only six reached the settlement. When the flow of men slowed down to a trickle, a detailed count was taken, and there were some 15,000 soldiers missing, and of them, about 8,300 were officers. Right away, General Anders, and what few officers he had, launched an investigation. These other men certainly knew that the missing officers were needed if they were going to meet the Germans in battle with any chance of fighting in a coordinated fashion. One report from former prisoners of the camp Grauzovek stated that they had been taken by Soviet troops from the main camps at Kozelsk, Ashtashkov, and Starobelsk. And when this information was cross-checked with witness accounts by others, it became clear that those 15,000 missing men were, at one time, at one of those three camps. That is, until the spring of 1940. Further checking with other gathering sites in Russia could find none of these men. Not one. When the Soviets were asked, they said they had no knowledge of those men, and they had kept records. The Poles were led to believe that these men were still wandering the forests, staying away from the Germans, but also the Soviets, as they probably did not know of the new situation with Germany's Barbarossa. But all of this did not materialize the officers that General Anders needed. Besides, thousands of letters started pouring in from the families of the missing. So, a search office was set up to track down any information that might lead to the discovery of the missing men. Captains John Kazowski and Joseph Kapsky were keenly active in this regard, but all they could report to Anders was that wherever these men had disappeared to, they all stopped writing letters to their families in mid-April of 1940. Captain Kazowski had known many of the missing men, so doggedly pursued any information that came in, no matter how scant. With a small group of men, Kazowski traveled to several former prison or labor camps, but could turn up nothing. Yet, because he had been at Camp Starobelsk 
he knew that it had been shut down and evacuated in the spring of 1940. But where the missing men had went from there, or those at Gravzovec, he could not ascertain. Yet the captain did not give up, and the fact that he could speak Russian allowed him to travel throughout the country in search of his comrades. He even sent a letter to General Nazdekin, the head of the Soviet Central Administration Office of Labor Camps. But this turned up nothing as well. However, Kazemsky's travels and inquiries soon got the attention of the NKVD, the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs. They informed General Anders to rein in the captain's travels. Still, Kazepsky wrote up a report with what information he had and asked for an interview with NKVD officials. Incredibly, this was granted in early February of 42. Kazepsky gave his report to General Reichmann of the NKVD, who promised to look into the matter. But just days later, Rockman called Kazepsky in the middle of the night and said he was being sent away on a matter of some import. The two men would not be able to talk face to face. However, before he hung up, the NKVD general gave the captain the name of a Mr. Vyshinsky, the vice chairman of the Council of People's Commissars. But Kazapsky knew this was a dead end, as Professor Kant, the Polish ambassador to the Soviet Union, had already spoken to this man several times about this matter, and had received no help. Clearly, the Soviets were not going to assist in this search, but that didn't change the fact that they were critical to finding out what had happened to the missing 15,000 Polish soldiers and officers. General Anders and his two captains went back over what information they had. The missing men had been at the camps at Kozelsk, Atashkov, and Starobelsk, that is, until April of 1940. By then, the camps were being shut down, and small groups of prisoners were being removed by large groups of NKVD guards. The soldiers were taken to the nearest rail station and put aboard trains. Up to this point, this had been witnessed by numerous fellow prisoners. But then the two captains had been able to find out, due to exhaustive travels and interviews, that the men taken from the Kozelsk camp were transferred to somewhere near Smolensk. At least, that's where the proof of their transports were found. Then the men were offloaded and walked to some place just west of Smolensk. But that's where the trail ended. By the spring of 1942, the situation was even more dire for the Soviets. Thus, the Polish organizing center was moved to Uzbekistan. And there, another infantry division, the 8th, was formed. But with the Soviets just hanging on against the invaders, Moscow did not have a lot to offer the Polish soldiers. Turns out the Polish men in uniform were sharing what they were given with their civilian countrymen. But then came the Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran in August of 1941. Technically, Persia was neutral, but the Reza Shah was seen as being pro-Axis. So the country was invaded, and a new leader was installed by the Allies. 
Thus, a corridor was kept open for supplies going to the Eastern Front. But by March of 1942, Stalin, who was never keen on arming previous enemies while still on Russian soil, agreed that some of the Polish troops could go to Iran. They would be followed by many of their civilian counterparts, and all would end up in British-controlled territories. Having received little to no help from the NKVD and various Soviet generals, the Poles decided to take their questions to Stalin himself. Professor Kott met with the leader on November 14, 1941. As Stalin's every waking moment was filled with fighting out the Germans, the Polish ambassador got right to the point. My request to you, Mr. President, is that you will give instructions for the officers, whom we need for the organization of the army, to be released. We possess records of when they were removed from the camps. To this, Stalin called the NKVD himself and asked if all the Polish POWs had been released. He was told they had been, and this was related back to Professor Cott. The conversation was over and had been a waste of time. General Anders and other military men met with Stalin two weeks later. But that resulted in an even crazier story when Stalin told the men that those missing Polish troops obviously escaped and went to Manchuria. The Soviets, it seemed, were going to be of no help whatsoever. Then the Americans and British got involved, but that led to nothing. Then General Zhukov himself got involved and pushed as far as he dared. The man was the hero of the hour, but he was still alive because he knew his limits. Yes, he was General Zhukov, but he was not Stalin. And in fact, Zhukov got several other Polish POWs freed, but only a few, and none of the men missing on the lists. The great general had gone as far as he could, or was willing to go. Nevertheless, the Poles continued to push, to investigate, to follow every lead, no matter how seemingly insignificant. But it all led to nothing. And this went on until early of 1943. Then, in late February '43, the German Communication Regiment 537, positioned a few miles west of Smolensk, sent a report back home. It said that the German field police there found several mass graves, all filled with Polish officers, who still had on their high leather boots and belts and medals. Each man, and there had to be thousands of them, were all shot in the head. But what made those reporting this nervous, as in for their lives, was that during their initial inspection, all of the victims seemed to have been killed with bullets of German making. Epilogue. Getting back to Claire Hollingsworth for a moment. When General Bernard Montgomery imposed a ban on British female correspondents in the front lines in Egypt of 1942, the fiery Hollingsworth got herself attached to the Americans and got a job with Time magazine. Thus, she was not kept from the war zone. Hollingsworth would go on to report on other major events. In 1963, she was in Beirut 
when Kim Philby disappeared, the British spy. Hollingsworth reported her belief that Philby was the third man of the Cambridge Five, which had been spying for Soviet Russia for years. The two men already discovered were Guy Burgess and Donald McLean. Hollingsworth had tracked Philby's steps, much like the Poles had for their missing men, and realized that Philby had left on a Soviet ship, making its way to Odessa. This she reported to the Guardian, yet its editor would not print the story, fearing a libel suit. But three months later, the Guardian did print the story, but far away from the front page. The next day, the Daily Express put out the same story, but on their front page. Downing Street had no choice but to admit that Philby had defected to the Soviet Union. Hollingsworth would go on to other war zones, like Vietnam in 1967, and she would be one of the first to predict that this conflict would end in a stalemate. In the 1970s, she would head to communist China and meet with Zhou Enlai, a lieutenant of Mao Zedong's, and the leader's wife. She would also interview the Shah of Iran, being the last person to do so. Claire settled down in Hong Kong, but just happened to be in Beijing during the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989, which she witnessed from a hotel balcony. Hollingworth was awarded the Order of the British Empire, or OBE, by Elizabeth II for services to journalism in 1982. Claire Hollingworth died in central Hong Kong on January 10, 2017. She was 105 years old. Correction, a few times I said Hollingsworth, but I apologize. There was no S. Her last name was Hollingworth. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 123, A War of Words. Last time, after Hitler had invaded the Soviet Union, Stalin found himself desperately needing allies. As such, he allowed Britain to act as a go-between to bring together the Soviet Union and one of its former victims, the Poles, which meant all the Polish prisoners were to be freed and their men would be encouraged to join an army that would fight beside the Russians against the invading Germans. But as H.P. Lovecraft noted, from even the greatest of horrors, irony is seldom absent. But now that the two were on the same side, the Polish needed to cobble together an army, and quickly, which was turning out not to be a problem, with some 25,000 men, mostly former soldiers, turning up to organization sites to enlist. However, General Anders, the man put in charge of the force, quickly noted that very few officers were showing up, a very small percentage indeed, compared to what had been available when Germany invaded Poland in 1939. Intense investigations were launched, and the missing 15,000 men could be traced up until April of 1940, somewhere just west of Smolensk, 
But there, the trail stopped. It was as if the men were just taken off the face of the planet. The Russian authorities, even Stalin himself, were of no help. Besides, they had a war to win. This is how the investigation and all the unanswered questions stood until February of 1943. Late that month, some German police in charge of the area just west of Smolensk came across several mass graves. The bodies, and there were thousands of them, were obviously soldiers, but more than that, officers, if one went by their fine boots and medals across their chests. This was reported back to Berlin, but with the caveat that the bullets in the men's heads were of German origin. The German police knew they had to report this, but also wondered, had they found some top-secret SS operation? If so, this could easily mean that they would be joining the Polish officers very soon. Minister of Propaganda Joseph Goebbels was informed of this in April of 43 and believed, or at least recorded in his diary that he believed, that the Russians had simply shot thousands of Polish prisoners. But that was for his personal thoughts. A few days later, the minister got back to work and believed he had come upon something that just might produce a crack in the Allies' armor. By February of that year, 43, the Battle of Stalingrad had ended with the surrender of what remained of the German 6th Army, under the command of General Paulus. The battle, lasting some five months, saw the loss of almost 300,000 German troops, more with their Romanian and Hungarian allies. But more of this later. Needless to say, the war was not going Germany's way. On April 13th, German radio announced that they had discovered the remains of thousands of Polish officers who were shot dead by the Soviets. The world was shocked. The Soviets were silent. At least for two days. Then, in every way they could, Moscow got out the word, in a matter-of-fact way, that claimed Polish prisoners of war who in 1941 were engaged in construction work west of Smolensk and who fell into the hands of German fascist hangmen had subsequently been executed. That area, some 10 miles west of Smolensk, had been taken over by the GPU, the Intelligence Service and Secret Police of Soviet Russia, in 1929. Barbed wire and no trespass signs had been put up a few years later. But this area, and all around it, were lost to the Germans during the opening months of Barbarossa. Of course, when Nazi Germany made this claim on the radio, no one outside the Third Reich believed it, and with good cause. What with the horrors that had been visited upon so many peoples, courtesy of the Nazis. Besides, some one-half million Poles were currently fighting against the Germans in various theaters, and their exploits were well known to the world. No, this was unthinkable. The Poles and the Soviets were allies. Still, the Germans believed they had something here. At least, no one of the highest circles in Berlin was admitting to this mass killing. Perhaps the Russians did 
execute the Poles. As such, Berlin ran with it. A Red Cross commission, an independent body, was invited to examine the spot alongside the German Special Medical Judiciary Commission. SS Chief Himmler and Goebbels gave the effort all the support they could muster. But the outside world, still shaken by this atrocity, as much as by the German invitation, accepted the request. The International Commission would be comprised of scholars and specialists in forensic medicine from Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Italy, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Switzerland, Hungary, and France. Dr. Cotesto, medical inspector of the Vichy government, was elected chairman of the commission by his colleagues. The members of the commission reached the Katyn Forest on April 28, 1943. The Germans bent over backwards to give the council everything they needed, including nine corpses that had not yet been touched, along with 982 more that had already been exhumed. But the Germans, who believed they had something powerful here, besides their narrow innocence, also invited a 12-member team from the Polish Red Cross, from occupied Poland. The Poles were understandably hesitant. This could easily have been one of Goebbels' stunts, but wanted to see the site for themselves. Incidentally, the Polish underground movement managed to place a few of their own on this team. They, more than anyone else, wanted to find the murderers and send the information back to the Polish government in exile in London. The simple reason? Revenge. This last group got to work right away, but stayed aloof from the Germans and the International Committee. Yet soon after their arrival, the Germans asked them to come to Germany to see their Polish POW camps, to tell its inmates of Katyn. But the Poles refused. They would do nothing to help the German cause. They just wanted the truth. So the Germans flew in some of their own Polish prisoners, and they, just like everyone else, had free reign over the area. Each commission, the International Red Cross, the Polish Red Cross, and the German group, all wrote up their reports. And here's what they had in common. Just west of Smolensk, eight mass graves were discovered, each one six to eleven feet deep, filled with corpses. The bodies were all lying face down, hands to their sides or tied behind their backs, legs straight, neatly stacked, ten to twelve bodies deep. Every single one was shot in the back of the head. The bullet entered just above the neck and traveled upwards, coming out of the face just below the hairline. However, there were two individual graves, and they each held a Polish general. They had died the same way as their men. Each victim had had his greatcoat pulled over his head, and most had the pistol placed against the coat when fired. The rope used for all of the victims' hands was the same, and the same double knot was used. The ropes were all of the same length, so had been measured and cut before use. Sadly, the way the ropes were tied to the men 
cause them to strangle themselves if they moved their hands or resisted. There were also signs of torture before being shot. A German scientist analyzed the ropes under a microscope and declared that they were Soviet-made. The two other commissions did not disagree with this assessment. Other smaller grave sites were found nearby, and in them were locals tied up in the same fashion, with the same knots. They were also killed by a bullet to the back of the head. But these people had been killed a few years earlier. Back to the Poles, it was obviously that many had struggled before being shot. This was determined by the bayonet holes in the bodies. The experts agreed that this type of bayonet was used by the Soviet army when the killings occurred. The Soviets had sent no such team, thus were unable to defend themselves, but used their ignorance of the forensic evidence as a shield. Basically, they said, we will not believe any experts but our own, and none are on the scene. As for identifying the victims, that was the easy part, as almost every man had some sort of identification on his person. And there was one woman of the Polish Air Force. What these people didn't have on their possession were valuables, unless sewn into their clothes or hidden in their shoes. All rings, watches, and the like were missing. So the men were either robbed before they were killed, or had traded all such items when in the camps for food or safety. It only added to the mystery. When the identification papers were poured over, the commission members found that there weren't only soldiers among the dead. Besides the military men, hundreds of teachers, lawyers, and journalists were found. The cream of Polish intelligentsia. So whoever did this had a specific goal in mind. The problem for Berlin was this was the sort of thing they had been carrying out since the start of the war. Getting back to the evidence, while it's true the bayonets had been Soviet-made, the bullets used were German, which incriminated both countries, but cleared neither. This weakened Goebbels' case that he was presenting to the world. As for the bullets, though, there was a ray of sunshine for the Germans. The ammunition used were Gecko caliber 7.65 or 6.35, and while they were made in Germany, the bullets had been shipped to Poland, to the Baltic States, and to Russia before the war. And, of course, they were used in Germany. So, more information, but it only muddied the water further. The only way, it seemed, to determine who killed these men was to determine when the crime was committed. So, all concerned focused on the date range all three commissions said the deed was done. Their collective thinking put the murders and the burials about three years before the bodies were found, which again made it the spring of 1940, which meant this was just more than a year before the Germans came rushing across the Russian border. And this matched up with what papers were found with the bodies, the latest being dated May 6th, 
1940. But this was far from over. For one thing, the German commission found only 4,143 bodies. The Polish Red Cross found 200 more. Either way, most of the victims were Polish officers. The paperwork belonging to the dead men placed them from the Kozelsk camp. Their names matched almost perfectly with the list sent by the Polish to the Soviets asking for information. The good news was about one-third of the missing 15,000 men had been found. The obvious bad news was that they were dead, had been murdered, in fact. But still, who had done it? But before anything else could be done, the Soviets told the various teams to leave. The weather was getting warmer, and the area was being invaded by millions of flies. There was also a Soviet counterattack that would be coming this way soon. The digging up of bodies was stopped on June 3rd. The International Commission had been there for three days, but the Polish Red Cross Committee stayed for a total of five weeks. The Soviets had tolerated this as the Poles were now their allies, but they weren't happy about it, and as the days went by, they reminded the Poles that their safety could not be guaranteed. As word of this investigation was released to the world, many Polish families wrote to the Germans, the Soviets, and the British about wanting answers and wanting to know who did this and what was going to happen to the bodies now. But the larger question was, what about the missing men from the other two camps at Starobelsk and Ostoshkov? One would imagine that this confusing situation, which equally pointed a finger at Germany as as much as Russia, would be cleverly spun by Dr. Goebbels and his propaganda machine. However, the Nazis could not help themselves. They spent the summer of '43 claiming the Jews were guilty of the mass murder. Yet no Poles believed this. It didn't help the German message when they responded to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising that started on April 19th, with a severe crush of those resisting, in which some 13,000 Jews were killed. Thus, during this time, Goebbels used the massacre to try to create tension between the Poles and the Soviets. But not to be outdone, Foreign Minister Ribbentrop claimed that he had evidence that the entire episode was organized by the British government, but to make it look like the Soviets had committed the act, hoping to split the British and the Soviet alliance. And in playing his own game, whose goal would not become obvious for some time, Stalin fell into this trap laid by the Germans. Backing up a bit, just before the International Red Cross arrived at Katyn Forest, General Anders, who was by now in the Middle East with his troops, asked the Polish government in exile to officially ask Moscow what was to become of those Poles still on Soviet territory. Anders, like everyone else, thought the Germans were lying, but was hoping to use this spotlight to get some answers from the Russians. But before a request for information 
could be sent. The Polish government in exile sent a request to the International Red Cross to investigate. In truth, both requests were sent at roughly the same time, but the organization in Geneva got theirs before the Russians did. What's more, the Germans had put in a request just before the Polish government, so it would look like to the world, and certainly to the paranoid Stalin, that one, the Poles and Germans were putting in the same request within 24 hours of each other, that they were working together and against the Russians. And second, Stalin was angered that the Polish government had not asked for information from him before going to Geneva. As we have seen, the Russians did not also ask for an investigation and did not send their own team. What's more, as the various teams were being formed, Stalin had his own diplomat in London ask the Polish Minister of Information to put out a statement that the Katyn massacre had been committed by the Germans. But the Poles would not, as they yet had no idea the identity of the murderers. This did not please Stalin. On April 19, 1943, the Soviet paper Pravda put out an editorial that claimed the Polish government in exile was working with the Germans. It stated the two requests that came roughly at the same time as their proof. But what the Soviets and Poles did not know until later, not that it mattered to Stalin, for he was playing his own game and saw an opening, was that the Germans had already put in a request for international intervention. They only put in a second request alongside the Polish to make it look like they were supporting each other. Stalin fell for this trap, but again, he believed he was setting up his own. Not unexpectedly, the Polish press in exile took up this challenge, which pleased those in Berlin. They stated that since the outbreak of the war, the Poles had offered up just over one-half million men who were currently fighting in several theaters and in their turn lambasted the Soviets for not joining in on the investigation, nor giving the Polish military, i.e. General Anders, any help with his investigation. Be it as it may, Stalin then launched his plan, having set it up with the Pravda editorial. He sent both Churchill and FDR identical messages that said, since it was clear the Polish government in exile was working with their common enemy and attacking the Soviet government, he had no choice but to sever its relations with the present Polish government in exile. He went on to ask, rhetorically, why didn't the Poles come to him first before putting this all before the world? But as we have seen, the plea for an investigation had been sent to Moscow and Geneva at the same time, but there was a delay in getting the request to the appropriate Soviet authorities. But Stalin was ignoring this. He was also ignoring the more than 200 requests for answers from the Poles between the fall of 1941 and April of 43. Besides, the Poles, only after more than a year of this, decided to appeal to a higher authority. 
Even further, they knew what Stalin would say, that the Germans had done it. Still, Stalin had his case, as weak as it was. But since he was the head of the Soviet state, this was more a matter of semantics than anything else. After all, the leader of Soviet Russia, with the war more or less going his way, was thinking of Russia's and Poland's future. Churchill replied to Stalin's note by saying he found it very hard to believe that the Polish government in London was colluding with the Nazis. Also, he wished that Stalin would have consulted him before taking such a drastic step. He finished his response by saying that the Poles were still willing to work with the Soviet government, which may or may not have been true, but he was seeking to lay the first beam of a new bridge. As for the Poles, Churchill had a quite different reaction. Slamming his fist down on the desk, he would vent, I am examining the possibility of silencing those Polish newspapers in this country which attacked the Soviet government. And indeed, the Polish press was informed never to criticize the Soviet Union again. And to forego the question of the remaining missing men. As he told the Polish leader, if they are dead, nothing you can do will bring them back. President Roosevelt felt the same way as Churchill. He also wrote to Stalin, saying he found it impossible to believe that the Poles were working in any way with the Nazis. However, he agreed with Stalin that the Poles had erred badly in not contacting Moscow first. Of course, he did not know of the delay, which, not on its own, spelled the doom of post-war independent Poland. Just after midnight, On April 26, 1943, the Polish ambassador to the Soviet Union, Mr. Tadeusz Romer, was summoned to the office of Mr. Molotov, the Commissariat for Foreign Affairs. Molotov curtly covered the points in Stalin's letter to the other Allied heads and said that, on the strength of this, the Soviet government has decided to sever relations with the Polish government. Mr. Romer protested the note. In the way it was delivered, and in such language, it could not be accepted by him. This was not how things were done. Mr. Romer returned to his hotel. A few hours later, a knock came to his door. Romer opened the door, and a man handed him an envelope, and then turned and left. The envelope held the same note that Molotov had read out earlier. Mr. Romer left Russia soon after, but was seen off by the American and British ambassadors to Soviet Russia. They gave the man parting gifts and said Poland still had them as allies. However, their bosses did not feel the same way. The day after Molotov gave Mr. Romer the note, General Skisorsky, the head of the Polish government in London, was encouraged to take part in a string of conferences with Churchill and Eden and the American ambassador, Drexel Biddle. After all was said and done, the Polish government put out a statement saying they were requesting that the International Red Cross, which was investigating the Katyn massacre, 
would suspend their work. If FDR and Churchill were hoping Stalin would be pleased by this and resume working with the Polish government in exile, they would be sadly disappointed.